morning, everyone. Last week, we, uh, we looked at nine characteristics of the church in Jerusalem, and we identified these as nine signs of a good, not a perfect, but a good church, nine vital signs of a healthy hub of Christian community and worship. And those nine vital signs were, and so let's have a piece or a bit of congregational participation. So church should be a place or a community of teaching, that's one. Fellowship, two. Holiness, good one, that was number eight, I think, yeah, great. Prayer, truth, brilliant, five. Breaking of bread, six. Wide-eyed wonder, seven. Two more. Joy, eight. Love. Why did we leave that one to the end? <laughs> Love, brilliant. There they are. And, and on Wednesday night, as, as a number of us met in the hall next door, we were praying that Windsor Baptist would be that kind of place, that kind of church. And... Can I encourage all of us to, to keep praying for that? To keep praying that Windsor Baptist would be a place and a community of these nine things. But back to this church in Jerusalem and its story in, in Acts, for those visiting, we're, we're working our way through Acts. Because as these nine things happened, th- this church grew, numbers went through the roof. So, for example, Acts 4, 4 says, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men were about 5,000. So this thing was exploding. Or in chapter 5, verse 14, we read, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, so this was becoming, as I said, this was becoming a mega church, huge. But not everyone was impressed. Not everyone was supportive. Some people in relatively high places did not like what was happening. And so they set out to wreck it and to wreck those involved. And so church leaders were arrested and they were threatened and they were banned from ever speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. But once these leaders were released, they just got together, they prayed And they asked God, God, give us even greater boldness to go and preach and teach in Jesus' name. And then some of them ended up in jail, but they miraculously escaped as as a kind of angel, it says, opened the prison doors. And all that did was intensify the negativity and the hostility. And so this church exploded and grew in the context of and in spite of opposition and persecution. And it seems that whenever these nine vital signs are visible and a church grows that hassles and problems and resistance and abuse from outside forces won't be too far away. And therefore, in our praying that Windsor Baptist would be this kind of church, can I also encourage you to pray for protection? on us as a church from outside forces, but also to pray that we would have greater boldness 
despite the opposition that may come our way. But as we get into chapter 6, and that's our text for this morning, it's page 1098 in the Pew Bibles, but as we get into chapter 6, we also discover there's, there's a bit of friction simmering and rising from within. And before we get to the details, I simply want to acknowledge that even when these nine things, good things, are happening, and whenever a church is growing, you don't just need to be on your guard against outside negativity, you also need to be prepared for internal tension and unrest. In fact, some would argue that most churches, and I agree with this, most churches that face hassle and difficulties and troubles today, especially in this country and on this continent, they do so from within as opposed to from without. Which is why the in aspect of our triangle, this diagram of discipleship, this in aspect that that, that is all about our relationship with one another, this is why this dimension, if you like, is so important. And why, as well as praying for all these nine things, and as well as praying for protection from outside forces and a greater boldness, we also need, desperately need, to be praying for unity and harmony and protection from within these walls. So what was it that kicked off in Jerusalem? that threatened the stability of this community. Well, let's read verse 1. It's on the screen. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there it is again, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. You see, here was a legitimate concern, but an illegitimate reaction. Please hear me in this. Legitimate concern, illegitimate reaction. You see, whenever people from different backgrounds come together, from different traditions, different ethnic and linguistic groupings, there often is a wee bit of tension. It's a strain. If you like, a clash of cultures. Rumblings of, I love that phrase, rumblings of discontent may, in fact, probably will emerge within most churches from time to time. For these believers in Jerusalem, These Christian disciples who were part of this new community, remember this was growing rapidly, they were part of this new community, part of this new family. Well, the challenges of being church, doing church together were real. And as people started to look around and see how things were done, some of them got a little restless, a little unhappy a little aggrieved, and so on isn't this often the case, that whenever we feel that different groups or groupings within the church are being favored or prioritized or getting unnecessary or more attention than we think they're due, we have, I'm not saying we have, there is a tendency to complain, even protest. 
And I think what was happening at Jerusalem is fascinating, and I'm not sure I've really noticed it before. I've often skimmed over this bit, the rumblings of discontent, the complaining. I've kind of raced past it and headed straight for the appointment of the seven and why that was important, and we will get there, but but let's pause for a moment and recognize an age-old problem and risk amongst the people of God, and that is the temptation to grumble and sound off. When things are not done the way we like, when things aren't happening the way we expect them to happen, it can often become our default reaction. Love a good whinge. And I'm sure we all remember the impact of complaining on the people of God and their destiny in the Old Testament. In fact, it was one of the main reasons, and we've looked at this before as a church, it was one of the main reasons, complaining, grumbling, griping, voicing off, was one of the main reasons that they ended up walking around in circles for 40 days in the wilderness. And so this is an important discipleship issue. We've got to be on our guard. And whenever we find ourselves together with others who are different from what we are, who come from different places, ethnically, culturally, politically, socially, theologically, no, let's not go there. Who come from different places, not only in a local church context, but also within the wider church family across denominations, for example, let's be really careful to check our attitude towards them and how we react to them. Especially whenever we think, well, they might be getting, they might be receiving certain advantages and favors. Higher profile, more attention. This takes us back to Jerusalem. There was grumbling from within alongside opposition from without. And so the apostles, the leaders of the church, got word of the complaining and called a church meeting. We all love a good church meeting, don't we? And the apostles got all the believers together. Now think about this. This must have been a massive meeting. Can you imagine it? Got all, it said, that's what it says here, got all the believers together. And I, like, I have no clue how big that was. Thousands. And they suggested a solution. Let's read from verse 2. Do you you want to stand, change of position? Reading God's Word. Verse 2. We're not going to read the rest of the chapter now, so you're going to be up and down a couple of times. Is that okay? Verse 2. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, can you imagine being a scrutineer at this meeting? They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them, and they laid their hands on them, grab a seat. And so the decision of the apostles and the choice of the seven by this church sorted out and put to bed a potential problem. And whatever else 
we take from this, and I know there's lots we could look at in this, but whatever else we take from this, let's highlight the fact that good leadership, wise leadership, plus believers coming together defined and agree on a way forward is so important in church life and ministry and witness. Wise leadership and believers coming together to agree a way forward. And if neither of these things had happened in Jerusalem, who knows what might have occurred next? And so can I encourage you as you pray for those nine things, as you pray for protection from outside forces and greater boldness, as you pray for our unity and our harmony and our togetherness, that you would also pray for the leadership here at Windsor and for your role who are part of this community, your role in coming together to address issues, to tackle potential problems, and find a way forward together whenever they arise. We're all different. Just take a look around this morning. We are all different. But let's remember that true Christian unity, practiced and preserved in the context of diversity, is a distinguishing mark of authentic Christianity. There will be times whenever we feel the need to raise issues and highlight potential problems. We're not so naive to think this won't ever happen between people in a church. There will be clashes of culture. But let's be careful how we react and express it. Legitimate concern is one thing. Rumblings of discontent and complaining is a whole other thing. Let's guard our unity. The in dimension of this triangle is so important. But back to our text. Because another great lesson to glean and, and, and take from this incident relates to the importance of word and deed or word and works. There sometimes can be or seem to be a tension between these two, and some people get pretty hot under the collar around these issues and conversations. Which is more important, preaching or social action? Which comes first, speaking or doing? In Acts 6, I think we find a perfect blend. And for me, it's far better, far more helpful to just see these things working together. They are, if you like, two sides of the same coin. And surely Jesus modeled this. I've I've often been confused at the tension that exists in this whole area. And quite disillusioned, if I'm honest, by a lot of the, the conversations that take place around it. Surely Jesus modeled this. He preached and he ministered to the needs of those he came into contact with. Both and, not either or. And even in the early chapters of Acts, we see this played out. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is incredible. He spoke truth. He brought God's word to life. But it was accompanied by service. Words accompanied by works, not just signs and wonders, but also sacrificial sharing with those in need. Powerful preaching, yes, powerful deeds. Now, it's fair to say that as, the apostles, as far as the apostles were concerned, and some of you I know reacted to this, as far as they were concerned, their primary task and mission was prayer and the ministry of the word. 
But did that mean they minimized the importance of the work of caring for all the widows, Greek or Hebrew speaking? No. And so it's why they suggested the appointment of seven. And not only suggested their appointment, they endorsed their appointment by laying their hands on them and praying for them and releasing them. See, what Stephen, etc., was doing was vital. As far as the apostles was concerned, this was frontline Christianity as well. Releasing people to be involved in different spheres of ministry. Some to concentrate on ministering God's word, yes. But others to focus on ministering to people's practical needs. Here was family working and operating together to be Christ's witnesses in what they said and what they did. Word and works. Practicing and preaching. Did the apostles only preach and pray? No. Because as you read on, or read what has been previously written, you find that the apostles also engaged in proactive service of ministering to people's needs. So although prayer and the ministry of word might have been their specific or their primary calling, it didn't exclude them from rolling their sleeves up and getting their hands dirty. The church in Jerusalem functioned effectively in an environment where God's word was preached and God's works were done, both and. And there are a lot of key sermons in Acts, and we'll come to quite a few of them during our journey through the book, but Acts is not just about preaching. It's about preaching buttressed by practice. Windsor, as we're praying for those name things, for protection, for boldness, for unity, for our leadership, for us working together, can we also pray that we'll be a church of word and deed? Practicing and preaching, speaking and doing, and that involves all of us. And so it's why I hope there is a mass rush to the back at the end of the service to sign up for the 29th of March. Because kind of like, that's the rolling our sleeves up, getting our hands dirty and doing back to Jerusalem. Because look at the impact this had. You see, as the the church faced external opposition, internal tension, it says in verse 7, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Three things happened. The good news spread like wildfire. More and more people heard it. More and more people saw it. Many responded to pick up the phrase from Acts chapter 2. Many people were cut to the heart. And so secondly, not only does the gospel spread like wildfire, but the number of believers in Jerusalem explodes even further. The momentum continues. And then the third thing that happens is that some quite strange, not expected people are converted too. Even some of the Jewish priests. This is such an exciting, almost extraordinary story. A story of what God is doing in his church. And remember, this is all about what God is doing. What God is doing in his church and through his church and how he's using ordinary people in lots of different ways to make a significant impact for the kingdom. And in the time I've left, I just want to, at the end of this, home in on one of those people. A key character in the story who's become a real hero of the Christian faith. Who's such an example to hopefully every single one of us. A man whose godly character speaks volumes. 
It exemplifies or it kind of screams of courageous witness for Jesus no matter what. No matter what the results, no matter what the consequences, no matter what it might lead to. And Windsor Baptist, can, can we pray that we would be these kind of people? Courageous witnesses for Jesus, no matter what. Let's read on. Do you want to stand again? Verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed many amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about him, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen, brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, The man is always speaking against the holy temple, against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple, change the customs of Moses that have been handed down to us. And at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. <laughs> Grab a seat. And we, we all know, and in, in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll get, we will get to this, we, we all know what happened, Stephen. But as you read this chapter, you discover six things about him. So here we go on another six-point sermon uh, in four minutes, right? We discover six things about him, six qualities that are surely attractive and worth considering. And, and these are six qualities I'm encouraging each of us to, to pursue, to leave here this morning and pursue. And the first is that he was, he was well-respected. And you see that from verse 3. All seven deacons, or rather servants, had to be. Reputation was important. You know, what others thought about these men, what others thought about Stephen mattered. And Stephen had a good reputation. And others acknowledged that. You see, the thing about reputation is it precedes you. Your reputation goes before you. And so whenever your name is mentioned and you're not there, what do people say about you? Because that kind of probably is your reputation. Stephen was someone clearly held in high, high regard. But question, how do you build a good reputation? Well, as with most things, it's harder to build than to destroy. Building a good reputation takes effort, takes patience, it takes time. Destroying a good reputation only takes a moment. What is the secret to building a good reputation? Become a person who deserves one. Become a person who deserves one. Stephen was well respected. And then you uncover five things he's full of. Love this. Five things people say to Stephen, do you know something? He's full of this. Tempted. So tempted, but I'm not going. Five things. First, verse 3, 5, tells us he was full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that is what every Christian disciple should be? 
should seek after. We've made the point often enough during this series that as a result of what happened at Pentecost in Acts 2, every subsequent Christian believer, follower of Jesus Christ, is given and receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian here this morning. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But according to Paul, for example, in Ephesians 5, we're to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. This is a process. This is a lifelong adventure. To be full of the Holy Spirit is about a daily walk under His control, under His influence, which then produces and increasingly produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Therefore, one of the key ways to check the fullness level in a person's life is to observe the presence of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Am I, and I've, I've said this before, am I more loving now than I ever have been before? Or do I need a refill? Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and you know something that was obvious to others? Secondly, we see this in verse 3, and again in verse 10, he was full of wisdom. Now, sometimes we tend to think of wisdom as it's about what you know or how much you know. Biblically speaking, wisdom is not so much about what you know, but how you live. It's about right conduct and obedience to God and his ways. That, that's one of the reasons why the, the writer of Proverbs makes the point that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, if you have a right or a proper concept and understanding and response to God, if you give God his place and submit to him, you'll be a wise person. And in James three seventeen, we read what wisdom from above, what godly wisdom actually look, looks like. I, I, one of the things I love about God's word is sometimes I think we, tr- we overcomplicate it. And so we kind of come to this point of, right, right, what does it mean to be full of wisdom? Well, actually, God's word just tells us. Here's what godly wisdom, wisdom from above, looks like in the life of a person. So if you like, here we are again holding up God's word as a mirror to our lives. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's peace-loving. Gentle at all times. Is this, is, this, is this me? It's willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. Is that me? Is that you? This was Stephen. He's crammed full of this. Wisdom. Lived rightly. And enabled him to respond well to situations and circumstances. And so even when the heat was on and whenever he was in a difficult environment, he was able to speak in such a way and debate with people that they turned around and said, here, hang on a minute. We just can't get over this guy's wisdom. That's what, that's what they said here. I want to make wise choices. I want to make good decisions. Therefore, I know I need the wisdom level topped up. The third thing Stephen was, was full of faith. He believed in God passionately. He referred to God consistently. He trusted in God completely. Do you know, in the next chapter, and Stephen preaches an epic sermon, 
And it reveals a man who knew what he believed. Here was a man who knew, do you know something? God's in control of history. And I'm not afraid to say that. I'm not afraid to stand up and express it. I have total confidence in my God. I'm full of faith in God. And that dictates my life and what I say. It's your confidence level like this morning, God. Are you full of faith? Two more, and then we're done. It's full of grace. Verse 8. He was full, I love us. he wasn't just full of grace, he was full of God's grace. What a thing to be said about someone. Full of God's grace. What is grace? Amongst other things, unmerited favor, getting what you don't deserve. That's what that was all about. Grace, we, we all know that we think. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus dies that I might live. So God's grace is extravagant. It's amazing. It's a shocking reality. And you know, whenever I think of Stephen, some of you know this, whenever you think of Stephen, you immediately think of that moment when he's being pummeled to death by rocks and his accusers. And what does Stephen do? What does Stephen do when he's being killed for his faith? Who can tell me? He prays for his killers. Lord, don't charge them for this sin. You see, that's Christ-like. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's grace. That prayer, as those rocks are raining down on him, is the prayer of a man crammed full of grace. And you know, I want to be that type of person. I want this church to be a grace dispenser. That we're so full of it that it oozes out. And finally, Stephen was full of power. Not his own power, but God's power. He was empowered to do incredible things. He was able to perform great signs and wonders among the people, not about a drawing attention to himself, but it was to point others to God, who was the source of his power. And as with lots of these qualities, they're all interconnected because only a man who's full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith can actually be full of power. It's the kind of way it works. And so we pray, more love, more power, more of you, God, in my life. More love, more power, more of you, God, in my life. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning. And hopefully there's something all of us can take away. Regarding our differences and our unity. Regarding the importance of leadership and working together to solve potential problems. The priority of word and deed, plus at a personal level. I, you know that we, you know when your kid dare to be a Daniel? I'd seek to be a Stephen. Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of wisdom. Full of faith. Full of grace. Full of power. Because then we'll be courageous Christians who are witnesses of Jesus and for Jesus, no matter what.